I make the point that I, I, I think now you've made that point. I remember the Labour Party manifesto for the last general yeah, election. Yeah, exactly. This is such a good example. Yeah, go on. Which explicitly mentioned far-right extremism on a number of occasions. Now, the, the prevailing terror threat in Britain is Islamist extremism, yet that wasn't explicitly mentioned once in the Labour Party manifesto. And I think there's a real reluctance to even, uh, there's even been efforts by uh, certain bodies who've said that in the counter-extremism space, uh, the term Islamist should be dropped. It should be replaced by terms such as uh, um, just sort of uh, Osama bin Laden's ideology. Yeah. You know, and I just think, you know, that, that, that sort of censorious approach, it doesn't do anyone any favours. We need oh. to be honest about the religious motivations behind particular types of extremism and terrorism-related activity. All right, I'm joined today by Dr. Rakib Essan. He's a research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society, which is a think tank, and he specialises in the socio-political behaviour and attitudes of British ethnic minorities. He regularly appears on TV, on the radio, online and in print um, to discuss issues relating to the state of race relations and just politics more generally. If you watch or listen to political programming, you'll almost definitely have come across him at some point. Um, so yeah, Rakib, thanks a lot for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Well, thank you for inviting me, Max. It's my pleasure. No worries. Uh, so let's start. Could you give me a background just to begin with about, you know, a bit about yourself and also the general area you focus on? Well, sure. Uh, pretty much lived my entire life in Luton. Uh, as many people know, it's a post-industrial, ethnically diverse town. So I guess that's where my natural interest in, you know, strengthening race relations and community cohesion comes from. Uh, in terms of my education, I did my undergrad, master's and PhD all at uh, Royal Holloway University of London. I'm a man of uh, stability and continuity, so I did everything at the same institution. It's a place that uh, will always have a place in my heart. Egham is very much a second home. As you've already mentioned, I'm a research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. I sit in two centres the Centre on Radicalisation and Terrorism and the Centre on Social and Political Risk. There's a great deal of overlap between the two. And as you said, um, very much focused on ultimately coming up with innovative ways to create a more socially cohesive, democratically stable Britain. Cool. So that, I mean, so something spoken about in relation to this is the way that the mainstream and part to the left discusses issues to do with multiculturalism, diversity, integration, things along those lines. What would you give as a kind of overview of your perspective on those issues? Well, I think if we're looking at the contemporary British left, uh, I, I, I see myself more of a sort of old fashioned left, you could say. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'd say that in terms of uh, patriotism, national identity, I think those kind of debates, uh, they really don't interest um, large elements of the contemporary British left. I think that if we're talking about issues such as multiculturalism and diversity, I think that people are all too willing to talk about the positive aspects of diversity without acknowledging the complications involved. And I think that 
one of the main problems on the left is that there's a lack of recognition of the taxing effect cultural diversity can have on social cohesion, especially in more uh, diverse urban parts of the country. When we're looking at multiculturalism more broadly, I do feel that we have almost a laissez-faire approach to uh, multiculturalism in the UK. I think, you know, all too often we celebrate differences. Uh, we champion diversity without understanding or rather coming up with a way of harnessing that diversity under a collective national identity. And I think when we talk about difference, I'd really make the point that there's strengths to be drawn from different cultures. But what I think Britain is missing at the moment is a common moral cultural standard, you know, based on principles such as equality of opportunity, definitely not interested in equality of outcomes, not in the slightest. Uh, meritocracy, respect for the rule of law, respect for democratic choice. I'm quite, uh, I'm quite big on talking about the significance of the family unit. I think that's something that's been lost in mainstream British uh, debate. Also, one of the problems that I have uh, when we're looking at cultural developments is loneliness among the elderly, the, you know, which I think is, uh, which quite frankly, I think is a national scandal. So deeply family oriented, uh, talking about how the, you know, the, the importance of local stable communities and that will touch on issues such as immigration and integration. Unfortunately, there's, there's far too many people who are located within the contemporary British left who are wholly opposed to even having discussions on, the, on these kinds of issues. And if you strike what I would consider to be a perfectly legitimate view, all too often you could be dismissed as being far right, pandering to white nationalism. Uh, I thought that I've seen hard left activists accusing Sakir Starmer of doing that, yeah. purely because he's emphasizing, um, you know, rather he's, he's looking to deliver a more patriotic message saying that Britain, he wants it to be the best place for someone to grow up and the best place for someone to grow old in. What a highly controversial message that is for some. <laughs> uh, but so, so yeah, yeah, sure. So I mean, just, just to finish on that general point, I do think there's a, it's almost, Max, I'd almost call it, it's, it's, it's hard left hysteria. I think that just the sheer mention of nation, family and community, you, you become some sort of reactionary, uh, uh, you know, hard right throwback. And I think that's much of the reason why you see an increasing number of traditional working class voters who belong to families where voting for Labour is, 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 is the default, is the thing that you do, uh, coming from communities where trade unionism used to be a way of life. Indeed, areas which are still highly unionised. They, they cannot relate to the modern day Labour Party at all. Yeah, I mean, there's so much there which we should discuss. That's more or less like an overview of everything I've discussed for the last 50 podcast episodes or however many years I've done. But basically, to clarify, your point isn't that you're against things like diversity or um, having different people from all different ethnic backgrounds living in the UK. You just think that we need some kind of unifying civic nationalism to underpin um, kind of society as a whole, which keeps everyone in part of a cohesive societal unit, I guess you could describe it as. I, I think the way you frame that is excellent. Uh, 
I think being a being a Muslim man of Bangladeshi and Indian origin, I don't yeah. think you know the idea that I would be opposed to diversity is is for the birds. But there, there's a very clear difference between being perfectly accepting of demographic diversity, but being wholly opposed to you know a sort of cultural hyper diversity. Uh, one can be perfectly accepting of a racially diverse society and also hold reservations over cultural diversity and the potentially taxing effect it has on social cohesion. That's, that's not contradictory in the slightest. I think what's really missing from the country at the moment is that common moral cultural standard. And I think I've, I've discussed with you um, before that... W- w- what I mean by that is we try and find a what you call an overarching framework of values and principles that people of different backgrounds can buy into. There is no harm in acknowledging the fact that there are features of the social mainstream which are what I would consider to be fundamentally undesirable, as I've discussed before. Britain has unfortunately established itself as a world leader when it comes to family breakdown. Yeah, uh, as as we've already touched upon, high rates of loneliness among the elderly. So you almost see those intergenerational family bonds being placed under ser- serious strain, or rather, they just simply don't exist. Uh, on top of that, uh, something maybe perhaps my uh, my Muslim social conservatism is coming to the fore here. I do think there's an obsession with feckless, low-achieving celebrity icons in the mainstream. Yeah. I really do. Uh, Britain is also the binge drinking capital of, you know, the, of Western Europe. So you, the, the main point that I would make is that certain cultures, they've managed to retain that emphasis on the significance of the family unit. Uh, I think I particularly look at uh, British families of Indian and West African origin, where there's a, there's a, you know, there's a strong sort of aspirational attitude uh, there's also that sense of taking care of one's own. So I think those attitudes, perhaps they've been lost to a degree in the mainstream. So I think it's, it's really the matter of establishing an overarching body of values and principles that people of different, different ethnic, racial and religious backgrounds can buy into. Because the reality of our is if people feel that people that, you know, other social groups, they're pulling in a different direction in terms of values, in terms of the way they um, in terms of the way they view Britain, that is going to have a negative impact on social cohesion. And the reality of the matter is you need those bonds of social trust and mutual respect, Max, in order to sustain collective endeavours one being the welfare state. So I find it amazing, Max, that we have so many open borders, you know, cosmopolitans on the left who also support an all-encompassing welfare state. The reality of the matter is you need a stable national membership which has, or rather, has collectively bought into a common moral cultural standard in order to cultivate those bonds and sustain those bonds of social trust and mutual respect, which help to preserve and maintain collective endeavours such as a robust welfare state. 
So something that strikes me as quite central to this whole discussion is the fact that you can't really discuss these things without... I mean, there's kind of... You use the word hysteria. There is definitely Mm. a degree of hysteria around these issues to the extent that even if you mention any qualms at all about any perceived failings in the multicultural project or Mm. lack of community cohesion in some ways or raising questions about the level of immigration in large sections of the commentariat or academia or this amongst mm. celebrities or where, where the cultural world people will treat that as if you come out and said something openly far right and racist where i mean like right now we're talking about that i'm jewish and you're muslim mm. neither of us are like traditional far right lunatics we're just mm. having I, i'm thinking myself as pretty left wing so do you we're just having a discussion about the issues and even that is considered basically as bad as openly coming out and saying something racist. But so I think one slight difference between me and you is I don't mm. strong I don't have a strong feeling either way about um, mm. diversity in itself being amazing or being terrible. I think it's mm. something I'm quite happy we've got quite a lot of diversity. I'm I basically just don't care about anyone's background at all. I think it's mm. kind of interesting for society, and I, I would try to not think about it. But I also definitely think you can't just accept the things are the way they are and not question mm. the massive changes that have taken place over the last 30 years and that are currently taking place without even discussing them. So I think what really strikes me is the impossibility of even raising these things as topics for discussion without being shouted down as a lunatic. Whereas I think, I guess one slight difference is that you agree with that, but you would also say that we have a kind of we a problem with the way the multicultural project is working. Is that your perspective on it? Well, I... I, I... I'll definitely say that multiculturalism, or rather the sort of British model of state-sponsored multiculturalism, has failed spectacularly. That, that I, I, I've no doubt in in expressing that view. Uh, I'd make the point that you know yourself being Jewish and um, me being Muslim, we'd be eyed up uh, quite readily by far-right uh, nationalists. Yeah. So I, I find it interesting that people who express perfectly legitimate concerns on issues such as immigration, multiculturalism, integration, then, you know, issues such as crime, terrorism, extremism, or specifically Islamist extremism, they're automatically branded as reactionary, they're being bigoted, uh, these are acts of racism, they should not be tolerated. And I think that's a huge problem on the left uh, in particular that they're not willing to openly discuss these matters. And the reality of the matter is, Max, we have problems in all of these areas. Okay? Yeah. Uh, the only way that you can resolve problems is by discussing them opening, openly and robustly. So I think the point I'd make is that what we need to do, we need to harness what different groups have in common, but we also have to be very clear about what cannot be accepted in modern day Britain. Uh, I think, for example, practices such as forced marriages, uh, female genital mutilation, FGM. We sh- people who express concerns on those issues, they're not being reactionary, they're not being bigoted, but pointing out pat- problematic cultural attitudes within specific groups in the UK. So we really need to move away from those kind of censorious tendencies which have contaminated thinking um, on the contemporary British left. And we need to have robust debates on issues such as immigration. So 
for me, as I've discussed um, in a number of my writings before, I do think you need a responsible, well-managed immigration system in order to cultivate and maintain social cohesion in the UK. I think that when it comes to previous patterns of immigration, we, we perhaps haven't prioritised English language skills enough. We haven't really looked at the political culture of origin. Uh, and I do think that there is space for a discussion when it comes to what should be prioritised within a post-Brexit immigration regime. So, and these are discussions the left can't hide away from. They simply can't. Because there are traditional working class voters in Labour heartlands who hold very conservative views on these kind of, on, on these kind of public policy matters, Max. And if people increasingly become overly protective over their own views on these kind of issues or they don't want to even engage in these kind of debates, they'll be left behind. Labour will be left behind in particular when it comes to those kind of um, public policy debates. And it'd be a shame to see. Well, yeah, something which has always stood out to me over the last kind of five, ten years has become way more apparent to me that a large part of the mainstream and left wing position is to some extent on these issues dependent on just the issue not being discussed. Because a lot of the arguments, it's not often there's not even an argument put forward in favour of why the specific issue which they're so strongly in favour of is a good thing. It's just it's just something which they think should happen and has mm. to be accepted and only discussed in positive terms. And often they're really complex issues which are really sensitive and to truly grapple with the issues thrown up, you have to take a kind of thorough academic look at it, try and mm. figure out the perspective of the different groups and then try to move forward in that way. Whereas actually what happens is the attempt is made to just smear anyone who raises it instantly as some sort of fanatic or someone who mm. believes fake news and then not discuss it. And that just means that Basically, I think a section of society buys into that and then goes along thinking that everyone else who says anything different is a maniac, which is quite polarising in itself. Mm. And another whole tranche of society who sees through that becomes really alienated and the opportunity exists for those people to then become quite radicalised to the mm. right, essentially, and get taken in by nefarious, quite extreme right-wing figures who say genuinely really racist stuff and genuinely mm. hate immigrants and stuff because they're the people who are making the points which you're not really allowed to discuss. So on one issue which I regularly go on about, for example, issues of Islamist extremism. Mm. When I was a really left-wing atheist, it was really obvious to me that something I would be opposed to would be religious fanatics going around beheading mm. Jews and gay people and Christians and any, any groups, just killing people because they're extremist religious fanatics. And mm. I would kind of turn to other left-wingers and be like, man, that really was a bad attack. Did you see that? Like, I really hate that ideology. Mm. And it was kind of like people just go blank and then be like, what? It's like, why are you talking about that? That's, that's not, not something we need to worry about. The only thing we need to worry about is like just something kind of completely unrelated, which at the point in time which the attack had happened wasn't standing out to me as the key issue at, at that time. Mm. Um, so that's something which I think is like really central to this whole discussion, possibly underpinning everything to do with the culture wars. Is that, and that's something you've spoken about a lot. So what's your view on kind of- I, mean, I, I make the point that, I, I, I think now you've made that point, I remember the Labour Party manifesto for the last general yeah, election. Yeah, exactly. This is such a good example. Yeah, go on. Which 
explicitly mentioned far-right extremism on a number of occasions. Now, the, the prevailing terror threat in Britain is Islamist extremism, yet that wasn't explicitly mentioned once in the Labour Party manifesto. And I think there's a real reluctance to even, uh, there's even been efforts by uh, certain bodies such as the National Association of Muslim Police, for example, who've said that in the counter-extremism space, uh, the term Islamist should be dropped and should be replaced by terms such as um, just a sort of Osama uh, bin Laden's ideology. Yeah. You know, and I just think, you know, that, that, that sort of censorious approach, it doesn't do anyone any favours. We need but, to be honest about the religious motivations behind particular types of extremism and terrorism-related activity. But it's exactly the same with... So if... the I always try to give the example of if this was happening every time a far-right attack happened. So let's say there was mm. a far-right attack, which does happen and is yeah. equally disgusting and also yeah. quite terrifying. Mm. Whenever there's a far-right attack, if there were, if kind of the vast majority of the media, political and cultural class, tried to, to, as, to some extent, not mention the fact that the ideology underpinning the attack was far-right. It was just discussed mm. in kind of vague terms, like just an evil guy did something mm. evil or any attempt to mention, okay, this might be something to do with the spread of far-right ideas, which we need to understand and counter, was just dismissed as kind of bigoted and looking at it mm. the wrong way. And everyone started saying things like, oh, more people die by slipping over in the bath and being killed by far-right terrorists. So you're just being taken in by fake news. If that happened every time there was a far-right attack, I'd be thinking like, what are these people mm. doing basically carrying water for the far-right? But fortunately, that doesn't happen on the left. I mean, there are some kind of far-right people who do that and I find that ridiculous but on the mm. left and in the center ground that doesn't traditionally happen whereas it definitely does happen with the Islamist attacks and that's kind of why this is relevant it's not like we're saying well, I mean I, I can't speak for you but I'm pretty sure you're not saying that oh it's bad that they mentioned far-right attacks in the Labour manifesto you're just making the point that if you explicitly mention that ideology by name why would you not mention the Islamist ideology which claims more lives across the West? Or you could just say we're going to come up with a robust approach to tackling extremism in the UK. It's sort, yeah. of, sort of an all-encompassing all statement. I think the point I'd make there is that Labour were clearly more comfortable with explicitly mentioning far-right extremism, yet they were clearly very reluctant to specifically mention Islamist extremism, which didn't feature at all. Now, and, and I say this quite honestly uh, as a... As a British Muslim, I almost think there's a bigotry of low expectations there. I, I feel that there's elements of the contemporary British left who think, oh, dearie me, um, do we mention Islamist extremism? That might alienate our British Muslim supporters. I'd often make the point that it's British Muslims who often suffer at the hands of Islamist extremist attitudes. Oh, yeah. No, it's like that attack. Do you see that attack in, I think it was in Scotland a few years ago. Mm. where I think it was an, an Ahmadi Muslim guy. Indeed, Assad Shah, shopkeeper in Scotland. But this, So this is such a classic example of why, on this issue, I find it really, really hard to mm. listen to anything that the centre-left type people really have to say, even though I agree with a lot of their kind of instincts on it, because mm. that attack happened and it followed the usual pattern, which was we didn't know the full facts at the time, and there were about 50 op-eds written saying yet another example of why we need to stop talking about radical Islam because this is actually a far-right attack on someone for being an Ahmadi Muslim. And mm. that was basically how it was covered. Or this is an attack because the person's Muslim and it's obviously by the far-right, which, if that had been the case, would obviously be disgusting. 
But then it turned out that actually the attack was an Islamist attack, which was mm. bigoted in that way against the guy of being an Ahmadi Muslim. And the conversation around it being a far-right attack kind of just died down mm. and no one really mentioned that attack anymore. All the people who are so supposedly concerned about it stopped being concerned the second the murderers turned out to be the wrong sort of fanatic. Mm. And I just think that's so unbelievably disingenuous and is also a sign of how people get misled on this whole issue. Well, Max, this is why I'm wholly opposed to the phrase British Muslim community. There is no such thing as British Muslim community. Because when you treat British Muslims as a homogenous, monolithic block, you can't even fathom when it comes to the sectarian murders such as this one that we're talking about, it can't even understand how it's taken place. And when it comes to you know, issues of sectarian victimization, misogynistic attitudes, I'd also make the point there's a great deal that, that there is uh, that there is research which shows that racism within British Muslim communities is a problem, especially um, anti-black racism. So you, you have all these dynamics, Max, and people that just want to homogenize, you know, the British Muslim population. And I think it's deeply unhealthy because what you do then you you overlook very serious social issues including sectarianism within British Muslim communities. And I think the left, unfortunately, there's far too many people within the contemporary British left, you know, using terms, using the acronym BAME. What what a useless acronym. And it's just, it it, it just, it it masks over very real differences between non-white groups, but also within specific non-white groups. So... I think for me, listen, I think that there's far too many uh, left-wing activists, they pretend that they know everything there is to know about urban Britain. I can tell you now, Max, many of them are absolutely clueless. Yeah. And they embarrass yeah. themselves very often in the public domain when it comes to these kind of issues. On that point about BAME, I had Zuby on and he was saying, like, why does everyone keep calling me a BAME? Like, it's just, <laughs> it's such a ridiculous thing that's just come out of nowhere. I actually hadn't thought about that, to be fair, but... I mean, it does seem weird to come up with a term which basically means everyone who's not white. I mean, I do find that slightly disconcerting, even though I definitely understand the impulse behind it. It does seem like you're trying to suddenly re-racialise everyone and make people hyper-conscious of race, which that's a kind of separate discussion. But I don't know. I mean, it's not something I've thought about in massive depth. Um, But okay. but having said all of this, I also think it's necessary to say that I do have a lot of sympathy with the impulse behind why some not all but some people are really reluctant to talk about this in a kind of robust way because Mm. for example if there was something going on in the jewish community i mean the jewish community but like if a bunch of jews were doing something and people Mm. started repeatedly explicitly talking about that Mm. i can see why you could be worried that it would make people generalize who aren't familiar with it and be worried that it would kind of draw too much attention to that group Mm. so and I think that could be the same for people who are worried about uh, uh, hyper focus on atrocities committed in the name of Islam meaning that all Muslims get tarred with the same brush and we have seen far-right attacks kind of in the last few years against Muslims based on that kind of misperception so presumably well do you think that's also something which it is worth being concerned about well I think that 
I think the issues that you raised there, what I will say, for example, and I'll stress this point again, censorship, when it comes to these kind of debates, it'll be very unhealthy in the long term. And I'll tell you why, Max. Because if you start couching certain phrases, or rather there's a you start adopting an overly careful approach to discussing the kind of issues that we we have, especially on extremism, someone's going to just start discussing them, Max. Okay? And what I will say is that the, like a fine example is, in terms of extremism, I would say, is when you have mainstream politicians reluctant to talk about certain issues, that gives what I would consider to be fringe extremist organisations on the right, it gives them leverage. They say, listen, they don't want you to talk about it. They don't want to even speak about it at all. They don't acknowledge that it's a problem. And what I say is, let's have the discussions in a robust, open manner, in a nuanced way, to make sure that fringe organisations do not take ownership of those discussions and issues. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so something else which you've discussed in relation to this is the way that there's a kind of homogenization of what the entire community thinks, which is something we've mm. really touched on, particularly with regards to things like attitudes towards uh, British society or the British police or the Prevent programme, all of which are things which we're often told by the left. Mm. Um, discussing these things is actually like, you know, the Muslim community really opposes prevent or feels alienated by X, Y, Z. And actually when you look at the statistics on it and the actual studies, which look at these things, that's not the case at all. Like large swathes of the British Muslim community are really patriotic, have pretty Mm. good view of the police and are actually relatively uncritical of, or even sympathetic towards the prevent program. That's something you've spoken about there. Well, I, th- I think one politician who springs to mind is, is Nash Shah, who's the shadow minister for um, community cohesion. I- I- interesting choice there from Sakir Starmer. So she's previously tweeted uh, in reference to Prevent that, uh, j- just for people who aren't very clear about what Prevent is, is the, you know, the government's counter-extremism counter uh, programme. Uh, when looking at prevent she made the point that it had alienated the and let down the british muslim community then crest advisory did a study which found out that 56 percent of british muslims had not even heard of prevent so the majority of british muslims had not heard of a program which is supposedly alienated them on mass yeah now when moving to the police some people are really taken aback when i tell them that the vast majority of black people have tr- have confidence in their local police force because th- this is such negative that these negative anti-police narratives they're gaining traction but crucially re- returning to the point about um british muslims the vast majority of british muslims think that britain is a great place to live they think it's a good place to live one of the main reasons they provide is that a freedom of religion, freedom to practice uh, one's own religion. Uh, these kind of things, are, they're, they're missing from mainstream discussions. Going back to the police, the, there's a vast majority of non-white groups have tr- trust and confidence in the local police force. 
Um, in fact, people of Indian and Bangladeshi origin, if I remember correctly, are actually more likely to have confidence in their local police force than white British people. Uh, and there's also very real differences. And I, I genuinely think the term black in some ways it masks over very real differences between different black ethnic groups so i'll give you one example max when we're looking at confidence in the local police force by the way these statistics are from the most recent crime survey for england and wales 76 percent of people of black african origin stated that they had confidence in the local police force the corresponding figure for people of black caribbean origin drops down to 56 percent and that's reflected in uh, previous surveys which have shown that uh, people of black African origin, they're more likely to be satisfied with the way democracy works in the UK when compared to people of black Caribbean origin. Now, if we just talk a little bit about educational outcomes, you see that uh, pupils of black Caribbean origin are more likely to be um, more likely to be excluded from school when compared with pupils of black African origin. Pupils of black African origin are far more, far more likely to achieve high level um, examination results when it comes to pupils of black Caribbean origin. So the point I'd make is that the term, the acronym BAME is problematic because it masks over very real differences. And it masks over the fact that there are problems which are especially concentrated within particular ethnic minority groups. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so we've kind of like gone on a slight tangent, but we may as well start talking about the BLM stuff and yeah. identity politics more broadly. But also just on that point, this is something which I've also spoken about quite a lot. I definitely think that the way in which a lot of this modern progressive mm. groupthink works, and it's so prevalent now that most people I know who are pretty well educated, like interested in this sort of stuff, won't have even really come across anything which seriously questions it or any articles which actually interrogate the claims made they just take them all on face granted so a classic one is mm. the way in which um disparities are used to be evidence of fundamentally racist discrimination in society or of societies discriminating against certain groups or different institutions discriminating against certain groups but often those discrimination that uh, those disparities don't paint that picture at all if you look at them in depth. So within education, for example, this is something I studied in a lot of depth. You will see a lot of people claiming and arguing that the education system is unbelievably racist. So that's just a claim which you'll have mm. put forward all the time. It's just disadvantaging certain groups, it's disadvantaging them on the basis of skin color. And then if you actually look at the statistics in education, first of all, white British kids, especially white working class British kids are pretty much the bottom of the rung like bottom row in terms of how well mm. they achieve they're, they're one of the most significantly underperforming groups and that, mm. that's not saying that the education system is racist against white british kids at all you probably have to look at things like cultural factors and mm. class and stuff to explain that um but that doesn't seem to detract from the claim that the education system is racist anyway and then it's like if you look within the black community black caribbean and black african kids or kids from nigeria from a nigerian background and kids from a caribbean background for example actually have dramatically different rates of mm. attainment in gcse um so to put that down to put like those disparities down to just racism in a basic sense even if some of those groups are seriously outperforming white british kids it's way too oversimplistic it's actually counterfactual in loads of ways but it's just repeated because it fits the narrative well, I mean, I think that when we're looking at educational outcomes, there's 
there's a range of factors which feed into educational outcomes. Uh, as, as we've discussed, uh, uh, white working class boys are not faring too well when it comes to, um, when it comes to academic performance uh, in schools. Now, I, I would say that when it comes to educational outcomes, things such as you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, family culture, what are the kind of attitudes which are cultivated in the household? Uh, indeed, how secure family units are? Uh, what's the sort of, you know, sort of broader community attitude towards academic excellence? Um, I think these kind of discussions, they need to be had when you're looking at educational outcomes. And as, as, as you've stated, Max, when looking at, um, the broader black population there's very clear differences in um, attainment rates uh, or rather level of educational attainment when it comes to pupils of black african and pupils of black caribbean origin uh, i mean i i saw a post from the black lives matter uh, uk twitter account talking about it wants to end the it wants to end the criminalization of black pupils in the classroom and i think that I mean, that, that, that kind of language is just it, it's, it's bonkers it really really is and there's this there's this sort of attempt to create a shared black resistance especially uh, among hard left activists which are not rooted in reality at all there's as i said there's very clear socio-political educational differences between people of black caribbean and black african origin indeed within the black african uh, the, the british population of black african origin the general experience of more well-established uh, families of nigerian christian origin may be very different to um muslim families which have fled uh, you know civil war um and social unrest from the horn of africa so I think that we really need to have these debates in a more nuanced way. Unfortunately, the left, uh, there's elements of the left in particular that are just very reluctant to do so. Yeah, but also just like on the exclusion point, it's similar with the BLM stuff in the sense that it just puts something quite complicated. So maybe there are mm. some sort of prejudices possibly with an education, maybe not. But if it's the case that there's a number of different factors which are contributing to slightly different exclusion rates in certain groups, some of which may be things like behavioural issues, meaning that some groups sometimes get excluded more, like as a whole across all of society. If you just put that down to one thing, binary thinking, it must be the racism of the teachers, nothing else. You just get, first of all, a massively um, divisive understanding of something which is much more complex. And secondly, you're just not trying to genuinely understand the issue and help those kids. What you're doing is trying to basically make people subscribe to your really simplistic and polarizing understanding of an issue, which if you want to solve, you need to think about in a more kind of problematic and stressful way. But it's the only way mm. to actually think about it. That's what I had Catherine Burblesing on. And she was saying that she's a headmistress at a really Yeah, Michaela's school. school, yeah. Yeah, Michaela. She was saying that she finds it almost kind of actively disadvantageous to the kids being excluded if you just have repeated op-eds and repeated commentary from high up figures saying that it's all the teachers fault for excluding mm. these kids because actually the kids don't get kind of told okay this is how you should behave and then as a result they don't get to benefit from the educational system so it actually disadvantages people 
And I think that's much the same as saying defund the police. It's like most, the majority of black people don't want to defund the police because it would actually lead to something called the Ferguson effect, which is basically a huge uptick in crime rates mm. in communities where the police draw back or are defunded. But nevertheless, it's repeated by people who think that that claim suits their really simplistic narrative, in my opinion. Oh, I, mean, I, th- I think there's, there's a great deal to unpack there. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say that in terms of, you know, the, the, the sort of simplistic and polarising narratives that you speak of, it does include commentary on education. So there's this sort of hard left interpretation of um, teacher-pupil relations where there's this huge myth peddled where white teachers are oppressors and black pupils are, you know, victims of institutional racism. Deeply deeply divisive narratives. And I think that, you know, I think more broadly when you look at education, there's movements such as decolonize the curriculum and all the rest of it. I think the emphasis should be ultimately providing a traditional education uh, which prioritises national inclusivity over group-based interests. Uh, There's this argument that historical black icons are completely sidelined in English education. Not true. If you actually look look at government UK, if you look at the government UK website and looking at the curriculum, individuals such as Mary C. Cole and Rosa Parks are very clearly mentioned, Max. So I I think the issue for me is that these deeply divisive narratives, they're not pushed back, you know, the pushback's quite weak, if I'm being completely honest. I think that's changing a little bit now. I think people are becoming a bit more robust in their criticisms. They're opening up more in that sense. Um, I think that, you you know, more broadly we need to discuss things such as, you know, what, what kind of values and attitudes are being cultivated in the household. Indeed, what is the impact of uh, family breakdown when we're looking at educational outcomes? And those discussions are not, necess- not necessarily easy to have. I admit this is admittedly sensitive territory, but the reality of the matter is you have to enter admittedly sensitive territory and, you need- and those discussions need to be held if you want to address the root of the problem. Yeah. So, move, so related to that, I guess, on what's your view on the Black Lives Matter movement at the moment? Well, I, I think for, firstly, there's a right bandwagon effect. That, you know, that this is a very, you know, it's, it's, it's very trendy and fashionable to express support for this movement. People didn't really do their research very well from the get-go. If they really wanted to know about the Black Lives Matter UK organisation's core objectives, is very clearly stated on their funding page. Uh, I think for me, when you look at this movement talking about defunding the police and investing in our communities, however much investment there is in mental health intervention, um, youth outreach, social initiatives that, you know, they're designed to keep young people on the straight and narrow, none of those are direct substitutes for policing. You need a robust police stru- policing structure in place. And as you said, you know, in terms of defunding the police, I think a great number of predominantly black inner city neighbourhoods would suffer if you went down that road. Now, I'm, I'm all for that. I mean, ultimately, as I said, I would say I'm a man of the left. I do think there is definitely 
an opportunity to boost public investment in those kind of social schemes I've discussed. But that is not a substitute and that is not a justification for then stripping back policing completely and um, starving police forces of much needed financial resources. Uh, if, you, if you talk more broadly about the movement, I would say there's, there's a fundamentally warped interpretation of British life and politics. And I think that's hugely d- divisive. I think if you want to make progress on race relations, on matters of racial equality, it, that needs to be inclusive, Max. And it can't be a matter of saying, oh, well, you're not allowed to have this discussion because you're the wrong skin colour. Uh, you know, you're a white person, you know, know your place. You don't know what you're talking about. Very unhealthy attitude. And it's not a productive way to make progress on admittedly sensitive issues surrounding race and ethnicity. So all in all, I think the movement, okay, I, you know, who would possibly disagree with the view that black lives matter? But if you're not being honest about the internal cultural issues which are holding back social progress and economic empowerment within black British communities, then you're doing the entire conversation a disservice, a grave disservice. Uh, So I think issues such as family breakdown, that needs to be part of the discussion. Um, Stable family units are more likely to be associated with beneficial educational outcomes for children, um, social well-being, emotional development. So the significance of the family needs to be part of those discussions. Unfortunately, I see very few people who are sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter UK movement discussing these issues, because then what it does suggest is you have to take a certain degree of responsibility. And I don't think they like that. There's a fundamental anti-responsibility dimension to hard left movements. The idea that, well, hang on, maybe there are internal cultural factors here which need to be recognised. They need to be discussed. It's ultimately about blaming the broader system, saying that, you know, this the reason for all of this is institutional racism. And I think we should really guard against those kind of reductive analyses um, in important policy spaces. I mean, it definitely seems to be the case that there's been a shifting of the lang- the meaning of language and the meaning of concepts to the extent that now even questioning the completely one-dimensional reliance on systemic racism explaining all disparities, mm. um, just questioning that narrative is now considered as bad as being pretty much an open fascist or like a really like an open advocate of racial politics or racism or white supremacy those just just questioning that one kind of specific really narrow interpretation of things which isn't statistically accurate it's just Mm. it just isn't is now considered to be really racist it's really really um hard to be brave enough to challenge that and also most people just haven't done the research into the actual stats and explanations behind it so you can see why people buy into this stuff but my, my point on this would be that what i'm concerned about is throwing the baby out with the bathwater in the sense that I do think that there are issues which the Black Lives Matter movement raises, Mm. which obviously are worth discussing. For example, it's just blatantly the case that in America, if you're born into a black, like statistically, if you're born into a black community, there are loads of 
things you're going to face, like issues you're going to face, possibly some forms of prejudice and all these different things which might hold you back and some forms of police behaviour and attitudes towards you and all these different things, they're worth discussing. I don't think it makes any sense to dismiss Mm. them as nonsensical. But at the same time, it's unbelievably important to understand that a number of the claims which are central to the movement and which make people by far the angriest actually are really misleading. So just one example is the way in which people always claim that there's a, so there's a video of celebrities, for example, claiming that there's an epidemic of the police just shooting black people in the streets. Mm-hmm. And that's completely decontextualized. It doesn't mention the fact that more white people have been shot by the police. It doesn't mm-hmm. mention any of the white people shot. It doesn't mention the fact that if you actually take into account crime rate or violent crime rate and the circumstances in which people interact with the police some studies have shown that you're actually very very slightly less likely to be shot if you are black in america than if you're white it's like these are really complicated issues Mm. which are just massively oversimplified for the purposes of furthering one narrative which is extremely divisive and understandably makes people unbelievably angry well i think that if if we're focusing more on the british context I would say that if if the if, if systemic racism was a genuine problem in policing, you you wouldn't have people of Black African origin being more likely to have confidence in their local police force than white Brits. It's it's and I I find it remarkable how there's been such little pushback to it's almost the peddling of mistruths, uh, in yeah. my view, on 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 matters of on matters of policing. Uh, as, as I mentioned many times before, the vast majority of ethnic minority people in the UK do not think that systemic racism is an issue in policing. They might think that they, 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 they may think that there's a select number of bad apples in police forces. Well, I've got, I've got news for everyone. That is going to be the case in every public institution in the country. There's, there's bad apples. There may be racists operating in public institutions. Sure. But and I think the arguments that have been offered, especially by elements of the contemporary British left, they're nonsensical largely because they've been imported from the United States. The United States is a very different cultural political context, has a very different cultural political context. Uh, in the United States, of course, you have the legacy of slavery, the black coats. You had the bizarre incident of protesters shouting at British police officers, don't shoot. And I just think this is just the most brainless importation of um, US style sort of culture, you know, slogan making that I've ever seen. It it really is. So listen, I I, I agree with you in the sense that, you know, in terms of, you know, guarding against throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? I'll give you a fine example. I think that in matters of labor market discrimination, I think we need to make far more progress. Um, There was a report that was published by the Center for Social Investigation based at Nuffield College, uh, University of Oxford, which showed that in some cases, racial discrimination in the labor market has not changed that much from the 1960s. I think that's a big problem for me, Max. As you know, someone who values equality of opportunity, I, I want to see the merit-based allocation of rewards and opportunities. 
We simply don't have that in the labour market at the moment. And some of those penalties in the labour market are especially severe towards British, uh, British black people. So another point I'd make, for example, is, is uh, and I've flagged this before in previous pieces that I've authored, there, there are issues surrounding maternity support for black British mothers as well. Those are the kind of bread and butter issues that we should be looking more into and addressing. The problem is, it's often these issues which aren't mentioned about at all by the Black Lives Matter UK movement. You would think that these are the bread and butter issues that they would bring to the table. Uh, very interestingly, a bit of a side point, I, I've seen Black Lives Matter UK from their official Twitter account tweet an entire thread on Israel-Palestine. Now, and I think it's a real weakness of left-wing social movements in the UK. And being a trade unionist, I, I, I feel I see this a lot in the trade union movement as well concentrate on the bread and butter British issues, okay? All too often they become, you know, in the name of internationalist solidarity, they become hugely distracted, um, talking about geopolitical tensions in the Middle East and the Indian subcontinent. So, you know, keep the focus. I agree, Max. I think there are issues surrounding race which need to be resolved, but let's have a mature discussion about it and let's keep, let's keep focused on what I would consider to be the bread and butter of what needs to be resolved. So how do you think these issues are going to affect or have affected people's voting habits kind of across the West? I think in terms of voting habits, I'd but say... Not just, not just BLM, but that's obviously part of it. But, I, you know, I just mean the general, the things we've been discussing in general, that kind of ideological worldview. I, I think that when we're looking at... OK, let's keep the focus on Britain for now. So... We saw the country um, vote to leave the European Union. Uh, and then more recently, we saw the Tories win a very handsome parliamentary majority, breaching what I'd consider to be traditional Labour voting territory, um, especially the former coal mining and steel heartlands. There needs to be an understanding that, and I'm, I'm looking, I'm specifically focusing on the contemporary British left here, if you have a reluctance to discuss certain issues, now I, I call them culture issues. So issues such as, you know, um, immigration, crime, terrorism, national sovereignty. We've also touched upon multiculturalism, cultural diversity. And if you continuously treat perfectly legitimate concerns on these kind of issues as reactionary, um, I've seen some far left activists discuss this as a sort of, you know, white nationalist rhetoric. If you treat, if you have that kind of patronizing and condescending attitude, you will lose votes to center right rivals. Inevitable. If I had to summarize it, I'd say that, of course, and the point I'd make is that anxieties over free market capitalism, they're increasingly becoming mainstream views. They really are. Um, if you even saw there are economic aspects of Corbynism, which commanded broad public support in the UK. But unfortunately, people don't want a prime minister who seems to be fraternising with Islamist organisations, or rather they've led their party to an EHRC investigation into allegations over institutionalised anti-Semitism. Okay, so you yeah. need to strike the right balance here. So I think sensible social democratic policies combined with an inclusive patriotism which try which understands that having 
um, a well-managed immigration system can actually be beneficial for social cohesion and national solidarity. I think if you can find the right balance there, that's it'll put the left on, it'll place the left strongly on the road to recovery in an electoral sense. Yeah, that's something which happened to me so much during the kind of the last few years is people turning to me and saying, kind of, how can you not vote for Jeremy Corbyn when clearly he's going to redistribute loads of wealth and clearly mm. everyone else is unbelievably evil? That's kind of a secondary side point which everyone always adds in. But I was just, that kind of just always makes me think, do these people not care about the fact that these guys are hanging out with people who are saying things like, we should stab all the Jews in the world, which is what Hamas like are teaching kids in their videos. There's literally videos of their programs with children which say that in them. Like if you're fraternizing with people like that, that for me is gonna take a lot of persuading for me to not mind that at all or not find an issue. But I guess it's just one of those things that people just don't really think about those things at all if they're not made aware of them by the media they're reading or the commentators they're listening to. Yeah, I mean, I think Jeremy Corbyn, there was, is, for some he was a cult hero, wasn't he? Almost like it's almost near reaching God status for some. It's yeah. very, very worrying. I find it very cringeworthy, but also very dangerous as well, in my view, because those very individuals, they overlooked some very nasty elements of, um, you know, the Corbyn leadership. Now, for a party like the Labour Party, you know, a party like Labour, you know, with this rich anti-discrimination tradition, um, protecting the rights of religious minorities, to then be subjected to EHRC investigation over allegations of institutionalised anti-Semitism. How could I, being a member of another religious minority, support a party like that? Well, there was a guy who spoke down the road from me in Shoreditch um, at a Labour Party event against anti-Semitism who said, we need a jihad against the Jews. It's like, I'm hardly going to be rushing out the door to vote for that. Like, it's just ridiculous. And it's, it's, also, it's also just the kind of general outlook, which is West, really by default, West-hating and anti-British mm. and anti-many of the things that I think are kind of great about Western democracy and liberal society instinctively just on any issue and then also whenever there's a really supremacist murderous islamist mm. attack just try to deflect instantly and put the focus on anyone who's drawing attention to the attack and criticizing it and what we should really do is call those people the bigots mm. rather than robustly speak out on the issues which have led to the attack in the first place. That's something I find so off-putting. In the same way that I would find someone who just refuses to discuss far-right terror ever as someone I'd also find off-putting. It's like those things need to be discussed. You can't just not discuss them whilst also claiming to be opposed to bigotry because that's the most active, violent form of bigotry in society at the moment. And if you don't have the balls to speak out about it, then mm. you shouldn't be able to call yourself an anti-racist, I don't think. Well, I, I think with, I mean, at one point I make about anti-racism, if you, if you call yourself an anti-racist, but you're very relaxed um, when it comes to forms of anti-white bigotry, then I'm not sure how much of an anti-racist that you are. And unfortunately, I think that's another problem, that normalisation of anti-white racism on the left, I think is a serious issue. Um, I, I, th I think more generally, when I look at recent developments within the Labour Party, I think... Ultimately, the way I'd describe Jeremy Corbyn is that he was a hard left rebellious character. And then all of a sudden he became leader of the Labour Party. I thought uh, he was always going to be destined for disaster. And then to follow the worst 
general election results since 1935 would we won the argument is one of the most laughable comical things i've witnessed in a, at the time in a very very long time i think labor needs to do a great deal of work in repairing its relationship with british jewish communities i'd also make the point that labor was once a political homeland for british jewish people more broadly and i think the fact that there's such little support for labor now within british jewish communities is is depressing i think yeah. it, I'll, I'll go for it saying it's depressing do, so do on that front though do you not think yeah. there's also an extent to which that is slightly overblown as well as in, i totally agree that mm. the islamist type anti-semitism really does piss me off and it's in but but to to summarize islamism as just anti-semitic seems slightly oversimplistic to me because obviously islamists are massive anti-semites and there are so many of them who mm. did things like speak at labor party events or give Jeremy Corbyn a hug or get introduced as his friends and stuff who are verging on murderously anti-Semitic. So obviously mm. they are anti-Semites, but they're also more than that. They're also massive homophobes, massively mm. anti-Christian in some cases. You know, they're anti many things. But then, mm. and, and there is also that conspiratorial kind of left-wing mm. anti-Semitism in general. Absolutely. But, but do, you, there's, do you not think there's also an extent to which um, things like, certain forms of criticism of Israel, which may be valid, are just instantly weaponized as anti-Semitism as a way to, to tar the Jeremy Corbyn leadership, even though I, I think in some respects they did deserve it. I think for me, there needs to be a very clear distinction between perfectly legitimate criticisms uh, when it comes to policies being enforced by the Israeli government. What I would say the problem is that there's far too many on the left who then use that as an excuse to be wholly intimidating towards Jewish people who support the state of Israel's existence. So not just that, Jewish people and non-Jewish people who support, um, you know, or rather they recognise the state of Israel as a legitimate nation state. So uh, there has to be a very clear separation between what the state of Israel is and British Jews as a social group. In, in our society. And I think all too often, I, 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 I almost feel that it's it, the actions, or rather the perceived actions of the State of Israel are used as an excuse to be intimidating towards British Jewish people. That, that, yeah. that, that's, what I, that's what I perceive. So of course, I don't think anyone, you know, make perfectly legitimate criticisms of any country you wish. Also, I'd make the point, apply those standards across the board. So if you have those expectations of the state of Israel, do you also have those expectations of China? Do you have those expectations of Saudi Arabia? Do you have those expectations of Iran? So I think there is a fairness element there that needs to be, an approach of fairness needs to be adopted on those kind of issues. So all in all, I, I agree. I think that dis distinction needs to be made. Uh, I think someone could be, you know, have a very favourable attitude towards British Jewish people, but they might not be, you know, they might not be very pleased with the general, uh, you know, the policy agenda of the Israeli government. I, I don't think that's a contradictory position. My issue is, is when the perceived actions of the State of Israel are used to be hostile and intimidating towards um, fellow British people who follow um, Judaism. Yeah. So that 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 would be my general view on that. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary. I think so. The only point I was going to make was, which I felt throughout, is I. 
think that the anti-Semitism point was worth making, and mm. there's a, especially with regard to the Islamist form of anti-Semitism, which is a whole other thing which we should definitely have discussed, but we probably don't have time to discuss now. <laughs> the conversation of that was slightly oversimplified because I don't think Islamists are just anti-Semitic. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. I mean, I'll, I'll make the point that there's a lot of problem with Islamists, Max. I'll make that point, I think. Yeah. For example, being fundamentally anti-rule of law, um, you know, completely rejecting the, the, the Western model of liberal democracy. Uh, you know, there's not much, uh, not much room for LGBT rights under conventional Islamist thought. Uh, so, so, so yeah, the, 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 there's there's a great deal. I mean, you know, then we'd also talk about rampant misogyny as well um, among um, people with Islamist mindsets. So, listen, there's a great deal. The, 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 there's a great deal of problems attached to Islamist extremism, which is precisely why we need to discuss them and we need to call it out when it takes place. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But so I was just going to say that I think it's slightly over, it was possibly oversimplifying that issue. And then as a result of that kind of the, just the anti-Semitism accusation, which was based in reality, I think, is definitely something which is also weaponized. And I've seen that happen to people on the right and even mm. in the centre who I agree with, but not to do with anti-Semitism, <coughs> usually to do with Islamophobia or other forms of racism or bigotry. That accusation sometimes where it's not merited will be weaponized in a in a kind of an attempt to completely delegitimize their points about every issue and so i find that really i find that really disingenuous when that happens when it's not necessarily warranted or if it's oversimplistic to figures in the center and on the right and i think that i had a feeling that to some extent that was one of the first times i've seen the right wing side of mm. things trying to do that to Jeremy Corbyn, because with Jeremy Corbyn, there's a lot which I really disagree with him on, but I did at least think that he had some kind of genuineness to his behaviour in a way which many centrist politicians don't. And I think that the way in which he was possibly just shut down as anti-Semitic when in some cases it didn't seem warranted was maybe something worth thinking about. Well, I'd make, I'd have to push back on that, Max, and I'll tell you what, when you, when you, when you become leader of a major political party, you have to take a great deal of responsibility. That party is then subject to HLC investigation over allegations of institutionalized anti-Semitism. Yeah. Now, I think I think with um, Corbyn in particular, he tolerated a great deal within the party, which should not have been tolerated. Yeah. Um, this is the broader point I'd make: fraternising with Islamist organisations. Yeah, that's definitely true. You can be. I genuinely think you, you can be you can be pro-Palestinian without, or rather, be supportive of Palestinian nationhood without fraternising with Islamist organisations. I don't think the two have to go hand in hand. So, I, I agree. I, th- I think, to be honest, I think people on the right should also be wary of far-right anti-Semitism as well. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. That's not this the is the point I would make, that anti-Semitism is, is that, it's that ring of racism, isn't it? It unites far-left, far-right and Islamist extremists um, who often share you know, very, very, you know, they share virtually the same anti-Semitic conspiracy theories when it comes to, you know, control over the banking sector, entertainment, the media, arms industry. So, and and these unfounded conspiracy theories, they indulge in disseminating them in such an aggressive manner. The far left 
far right and Islamists are all to be quite honest if you look at those if you treat them as separate domains of extremism there's a great deal of anti-semitism to be found in all three if you break it down so what I will say is that people should not be selective in the kind of anti-semitism they want to combat yeah anti-semitism needs to be tackled irrespective of who is peddling those anti-semitic conspiracy theories and who is looking to spread those anti-jewish views all right rakib that was great um you're welcome back whenever you want <laughs> and yeah hopefully speak to you soon oh yeah i also always forget to say can anyone who's watching this give this a like and leave a comment letting us know what you think and also remember to subscribe to the channel and if you're listening to this as a podcast if you could just give us a rating and a review a good review hopefully that's also great because it helps people find it and yeah it's, it's helpful to help the channel grow and stuff so yeah thanks for watching and rakib speak to you soon hopefully my pleasure thank you for inviting me boom, 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 boom.